The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Oh, Psalms. Keep coming back to the Psalms. Wondering why we are here. We've talked about them in the weeks that we've been together this summer. But we're drawn to the Psalms. The heart of the Christian, and even for one who may not be a believer, a follower of Christ, is still drawn to uh, these songs, these prayers, these words, because they're an expression uh, of the human condition. They are an expression of our need of God. They are a, a picture of who God is in relationship to creation uh, and to uh, humanity. And so we look at the Psalms, and we've been looking at them, and I hope that they are resonating deeply with you, that as you read the words of David and you consider uh, all of the glories of creation as you walk out in the evening and see the stars, or you go out and you look at the ocean and the waves coming in and the vastness of it, and you see you're drawn into the words... Thou art God who made the heavens and the earth. When I consider the heavens, thy handiwork, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou dost care for him? And you feel small uh, in the midst of it, and you wonder about your significance uh, because lots of people have forgotten about you. You're not all that big a deal uh, at the end of the day. In my profession, numbers seem to matter more than they should for pastors. And the reality is this, pick the biggest church uh, in the United States. I don't know, let's just pick a a moderate-sized big church of 20,000 people. And the pastors feel really good about the fact that they've got 20,000 people coming and listening to them every week. But you know the reality? There's billions who've never heard of that guy's name. They could care less that he lives. He's insignificant in one sense in the grand scheme of things. That maybe uh, you're the top of whatever chart you're on. Maybe uh, you look and you wonder, is my life even significant? And the psalmist draws you in. The Lord draws you in because you look at the magnificence of God and then you hear David say, but thou art mindful of me and you considered me a little lower than the angels and you crowned me with glory and with honor. You gave dignity to my life. You, you hear me. You created me. And you're drawn then into the other words of Scripture and the psalmist when you wonder about your significance. You wonder about the uniqueness of who you are. Some of your giftedness is different from the giftedness of somebody else. Some of your attributes are different from the attributes of others. And you wonder, am I a mistake? Was, was I... Uh, was I made sort of as plan B? And you're drawn into, thou didst create me in my mother's womb and formed me, even in the depths of the earth. And you did know me before my days, and you set my days in place. And your heart resonates with that. And you wonder if what you're doing is the right thing for you to do. Does your life really have meaning? Is, is tomorrow, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And you don't know what's going to take place the next day. And you remember again the words of the psalmist who says, But the Lord has formed your days beforehand, all of them. 
And he hems you in before and behind, and he covers you, and he knows your life. And so you resonate with the Psalms and the psalmists. You come, and in your life with the Lord, if you are a follower of Christ, there are moments, all of you would agree, have there been moments when your life felt a little arid, at least spiritually speaking, dry, that God seemed distant from you? Then you're drawn to, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul pants for you, O God. That, God, you seem absent from me. And I need to remind you of your absence. I'm going back to a place where there's supposed to be water. A place where I'm supposed to draw life. I'm coming to you and I feel totally dry and barren. And, God, I need you to hear me. and need you to draw near to me. The Psalms are all about, at some level, the human condition in light of God's condition of who he is. And we're drawn to them. You should camp in them a lot. Listen to them sung. Read them and memorize them. Have them in your heart so that you can preach them to your heart. You see, it's always important, by the way, we've said this before, that it is more important for you to preach to your heart than to listen to your heart. We're driven in a culture that says, just listen to your heart, just listen to your emotions. Well, the reality is this, no, I need to preach these truths because it's my emotions that tell me that I'm forgotten. It's my emotions that tell me that I'm small. It's the cultural inputs that tell me that I'm insignificant. So I have to preach God's word to my heart that says, no, I'm not. I have dignity and I have value just the way that I am made wonderfully and fearfully by my God. And that when I wrestle with times of failure that we relate, I imagine, that most of us this week have failed in one way or another, either by God's standard or by our own. It's easier to fail by our own standard, isn't it? Because we just change the standard. (laughs) We just move it down. We try to do that with God's, and the fact of the matter is it's an immovable standard. And it's condemning, as it were, of his perfections and his righteousness. And we wonder, what are we going to do with this guilt now that I have? What am I going to do with the imperfection that I do find within my soul? And we run with David to, God, you cleanse me and you make me new. You clean away all of my trespasses and forgive me. And you set my feet upon a rock. that, That you establish me and have forgiven me by the work of Christ So the Psalms are your book, folks. It it may get confusing when you get into numbers and some of the minor prophets and when you try to figure out maybe some of the intricacies uh, of the theology of Paul. Uh, But I can tell you this, the Psalms resonate with the human heart. And I hope that you spend time there. And what we're going to see today uh, as we camp out a little bit in Psalm 86 is we're going to learn some things about prayer I talk to people regularly, and I would ask the question, so what part of your spiritual life really needs to be shored up a little bit, maybe increased or strengthened almost across the board? It's my prayer life. I need to pray more. Uh, I need to be a, a person of prayer more often. I usually only pray when things are going wrong, and then I'm a person of prayer. But when things start going back right again, uh, then I stop praying. And the Psalms teach us, some things about prayer. They teach us a motivation for our prayers. 
Uh, They teach us uh, the object of our prayers. They teach us the power within our prayers. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning briefly together, each of those three things. We learn in Psalm 86 a motivation for our prayers, the object of our prayers, and the power of our prayers. So let's ask God's blessing on the reading and hearing of his word that it might minister to our hearts and our souls and minds. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word now and humble ourselves under it. We ask that you would speak powerfully by the power of your spirit, that this is your word, not our own, and therefore we bend the knee and submit ourselves. And we, we pray that you would give us the strength to do what it is it calls us to do. To Christ be the glory. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. So these three things, motivation in our prayer life, the object of our prayers, and the power of our prayers. Motivation, object, and power. The motivations for prayers are given in this passage of Scripture, this psalm, both in a negative and in a positive Uh, that we learn motivations both from the negative entrance point and from a positive entrance point. The negative motivations for prayers uh, come in verses 1 and verse 7, verse 14, for it says that we are in need of God. We pray because we're needy people. We pray because we have vast and profound needs that cannot be satisfied anywhere else. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I'm poor and needy. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. We're in danger. We are in need. 
Verse 7, in the day of my trouble, there's a troubling that's happening uh, within our lives. So we find ourselves needy. We find ourselves unable to care for ourselves, verse 1 says. What an interesting introduction. I would imagine and wonder in your own prayer life, how often do you pray that, Lord, that way to the Lord? God, I'm poor and needy. God, I can't manage life myself. That should be the entrance point. But that is a continued affront to the human ego and to the pride. Because you see, we produce within ourselves an incredible mask. We pose for the world around us that says this, I'm not poor and needy. Everything that we do, we are concocting, that we are manufacturing, we are intricately building a life and a presentation of life that says, I am not poor and I am not needy. I've got everything under control. Guys, if you don't believe me, how often do you read instruction manuals? Really? You don't because you got it. I had to admit to a friend and it was shaming Yeah, I couldn't figure out how to use that thing, so I actually had to use the uh, instruction manual. The instruction manual that was still sealed within the plastic because my friend knew how to do it, and I didn't. And it it was embarrassing to have to admit I was poor and needy on how to use a tool. If that's that embarrassing, how much more on, I don't know how to do marriage. I don't know how to be a good husband. I don't know how to be a good wife. I don't know how to be a father. I don't know what to do uh, when everything starts to overwhelm me. I don't know how to do all of this stuff. You know, we want to go around thinking that we've got all the answers. That we've created this facade for ourselves. But you see, the scriptures tell us, at least in a negative form, that we pray because we're in need. If you don't have much of a prayer life, what it is probably saying about you is that you wrestle with deep and profound pride. That you don't see a need for God in your life. That you've got it. I can handle it, God. Just get me going and I can manage everything else. So it first teaches us one of the motivations is that we're in need. Another motivation uh, is that we have enemies who are trying to destroy us. David had actual legitimate enemies. He had a band of marauding men. We're not sure what point in life David is writing this, but he's writing it as a place uh, where people are trying to kill him. Ungodly people, godless people are trying to kill him. We don't know if it's Philistines. We don't know who it is, uh, but it's people trying to kill him. And you may go, Bill, I don't have anybody trying to kill me that I know of. There's some folks that may not like me, but they're not trying to kill me. Well, biblically speaking, we do know that we have an enemy. We have an enemy who seeks to destroy. We have a true enemy uh, who says, and he comes, and it says even in Revelation at the birth of Christ, we've studied this a few um, advents ago, that that this imagery uh, of the woman giving birth Uh, to the child, and then the red dragon comes and he tries to destroy the child, which is Christ, and he can't destroy the child. So guess where he turns his attention? On you guys. So there's this incredible picture of this dragon, uh, this cosmic dragon, this cosmic enemy coming and trying to take you down, that he's pursuing you. Peter says he's like a roaring lion, that he's out and about, and not to cuddle up to you, but he's there to devour you 
The Lord said uh, in his conversation, Cain said, keep very careful, Cain, because your enemy, sin, crouches at your door. It hides itself. It pulls back uh, to hide itself and its power, but its desire is for you. It's an enemy of yours. And so we need to understand, I'm poor and needy. I'm in a place of weakness. And oh no, not only am I in a place of weakness, but I have an enemy that's trying to attack me. And so it drives us and leads us to prayer. Some of you are going, not me. I'm fine. I've got everything that I need. I'm good. I'm in a great place, Bill. Well, here's something else that you need to learn from the negative, at least. It doesn't matter who you are. And you learn that from the simple beginning of this psalm, a prayer of David. A prayer of David. David, the king. David, the anointed king. David, the anointed king of Israel, who was a man after God's own heart. This David, who had everything that you could possibly want. He had wealth and affluence. He had beauty surrounding him. He had power. His word was law. If he said do it, it was going to be done at the risk of death. He he could have anything he wanted. He had a palace. He had an expanding kingdom. He had a business model that seemed to be working. He had money in the bank. He had all of this stuff. And David is saying this. It doesn't matter who you are. Because David realized this. I can pray And I can beg the Lord, but I can't save my child's life. I can rip my clothes and I can weep, but my baby died. That that I'm a man who can do an incredible amount of stuff. I can snap my fingers and people run to me. People do what I say. But I don't know what to do with this guilt of the fact that I murdered a good man. A faithful husband to his wife. A good son to his parents. I murdered him. And then I took his wife. And I raped her. And I took her as my own. What do I do with that guilt? And I lied. And I'm covered in shame. I don't know what to do with that. And then it seemed that I got my stuff together. And things were going pretty well. But then my son, my Absalom. My own child rebelled within my home. And I was forced out. And I had to fight against my son. And then I found him. What a picture that no father would ever want to see of his child, his son, even his rebellious son, hanging in a tree. What an indelibly marked picture that had to be on David. And so what this psalm is teaching you is this. Everybody needs to be in prayer no matter who you are. And that resonates so well with us, right? Because guess what? Hilton Head and the Low Country is the end, is the penultimate place of the American dream. The American dream is I'm going to work hard. I'm going to stow money away. I'm going to get all of this. I'm going to get all the toys. And then I'm going to retire as early as I can retire. And I'm going to move to a beautiful place. And I'm going to buy a beautiful home uh, that has all the beautiful accoutrements of life. And I'm going to park myself there. And that's where I'm going to be when the Lord takes me home. Guess what? That's where we live. 
And we think because we have gates and houses and money and power and prestige and beauty, we think that we don't need prayer and God. And David would say, be very careful. Anything that you had, I could triple. And I realize this, I am poor and needy. And I pray, God, to you. That motivation that drives us, it's that driving force that takes us to God. But then there's also a drawing force that brings us to God. The negative motivations, as I saw there, said there, uh, are these, we have an enemy, we are poor and needy, uh, that it really doesn't matter who we are. The positive motivations are this, preserve my life, for I'm godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. The positive draw into prayer is this, God knows you. He's your father. He's the lover of your soul, the creator of your very being. He is your God, and he draws you to himself. He is in relationship with you, that you can come and you're drawn into his presence by his beauty, by his magnificence, uh, by his splendor, by his might, by his tenderness, by his love. You're drawn to him, and you realize how in the world can I even talk to this man, to this God, to this this powerful person uh, that is there, and then you realize, oh, he's my God. He's my Father who art in heaven, and I can talk to him because I love him and he loves me. I'm his child. I'm his follower. I'm his servant within his kingdom. He's my king. Ah, how beautiful. And so I'm drawn to him to talk to him. And then we learn something else. It's not necessarily within this psalm, but we learn it throughout All of the scripture, not only is he your God, not only are you in relationship with him and he to you, but he relates to you at every level. David was a man who'd lost two children, but he could come to a God who said, I lost a son too. I know the pain of being a father looking at my son dying. David, I relate to you. When he came to Christ, he said, Christ, I'm so tempted. I'm tempted to do this. My heart tempts me to do this. Christ would be able to say, I've been tempted in the same way. Every temptation that has overcome man has been tempted to Christ, but yet he was tempted, but yet without sin. And so he relates to us. They would say, I've been abandoned. I've been abandoned by my family. I've been abandoned by my friends. And the Lord in Christ would go, me too. I know what that's like. I know what that's like for people to abandon you. People who should never turn from you, turn and go, I never knew him. Three times. So David, I relate to you. David would go, I'm persecuted. There's people who are trying to kill me. Christ would go, I know exactly what you mean. I relate to you. Aren't you drawn to people who can relate to you? Honestly. That when you are with somebody and you have something going on in your life and you say, I'm wrestling with this. Do you want to know why AA is so powerful? It's because addicts relate to other addicts. 
And they walk into the room and they without shame and without guilt go, Hi, I'm Bill McCutcheon. I'm an addict. And everybody in the room says, What? Hi, Bill. It's okay. You're not going to give away anything. I can't let people know that maybe I... But you walk in and you go, I'm known. So I can say to somebody else, I am wrestling. Everything in me is being drawn to try. I want to drink. I want to use. I want to medicate. I want to do this. And you've got a room of people who are going, I understand exactly what you're talking about. And they, they hear you and you're drawn to them. You realize broken people are drawn to broken people. Restored people are drawn to restored people. People who understand the grace of Jesus Christ are not drawn to legalists. They are not drawn to moral superiors. They are drawn to other people who go, I am broken and busted and lost, but I've been found and put back together by the very grace of Jesus Christ. We're drawn to one another in that. No matter what our backgrounds, no matter what color of our skin, we are drawn over every line that divides. We're drawn by these things that we have in common. And guess what? You have an awful lot in common with your Father in heaven. He relates to you. So what are your motivations in prayer? Well, there's the negative and there's the positive. And then what's the object of your prayer? It sounds like it may need to go without saying, but I think it's important. David understood that God alone was his source. God alone was the object of the prayer. God alone was his object of hope. He says, to you, O Lord, to you alone, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. It's to you, God, that I come with my life, with my brokenness, with my hurts, with everything that I have, with my great joys. I want to share them with you. With everything about who I am, I come to you. God, and to you alone. When I'm overwhelmed, as David was in this, there was a desperation within David's prayer. And David could have run to a lot of different places because, you see, the world is filled with counterfeit sources of hope. People run to a myriad of sources. We medicate with everything from shopping to drugs and alcohol the pornography, which is just overtaking. By the way, folks, just as an aside, the numbers are staggering of sexual, uh, misplaced sexual intimacy within our culture. And all that is, somebody once said that every man who's ever knocked on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Looking for something to fill his life. Looking for something to take care of his pain. Looking for somebody and someone, something that would somehow placate his guilt. Placate all that's going on. We run to these counterfeit sources. We run to them. We, we vegetate in front uh, of them. Uh, we worship them as it were. And what God is trying to say here is, I'm your only true source. Quit going back to empty wells. The scriptures talk uh, about cisterns, and they describe cisterns uh, as hand-hewn cisterns in stone that are cracked and can't hold water, and yet we go back to them all the time. Do you ever find yourself going back to the same place hoping for a different result? And you know that that's insanity and the definition of insanity, but we keep going back. We came thinking, if I just double down on this, if I add a few reallys uh, into this, I'm really, really this, and I'm really that, and, and we're really in, and then it's going to somehow satisfy me, and you keep trying to drink, and what you find is it's dust, and God is saying this because you're going to broken cisterns. You're going to counterfeits when you have the true source of delight, 
the true source of hope, right here for you. I'm it. Look at how David describes it. I'm just going to go through a list and not explain all of them. He is the true source of grace and of mercy. Are you wrestling with sin and brokenness and fallenness within your life? God is the source for you to find grace and mercy. Not your works and not the world around you. Gladness and joy. Boy, the, the church could use an infusion of gladness and joy. Couldn't we? Yeah, we could. <laughs> he proved my point. Where are yours? I'm going to heaven. It's going to be hell until I get there, but at least I go to heaven. What's heaven going to be like? Probably going to be good for you. I'm just hoping to get a skateboard. Maybe you'll get a Mercedes. I don't know. I get a back house. You're going to get a mansion. I don't know. God is saying, do you need joy in your life? Come to me. The source of true joy and delight. For I'm going to show you some things about yourself. I'm going to show you some things about me. I'm going to show you some things about heaven. That heaven is so good. That the new heaven and the new earth, when I recreate it one day, and all of the saints will be raised up with my son when he returns, and you're given this new body which isn't going to fail you, and a new mind which is never going to fail you, and you're going to have no struggle with sin, and none of it, all of this stuff is going to be made new, and it's going to be made right, and it's going to be awesome, and it's all for you free of charge. And you're going to go, awesome. <laughs> so, Bill, you really want us to raise our hands and worship? Gosh, you know, that's charismatic. I don't know what else to do. You go, this is awesome. Praise be to this God who has given me all things. It wells up within us of joy. It moves our affections. Nothing else does in this world. It may temporarily bump the, the needle, but it will not sustain that needle in your life. That he's the source of everything that's good. That he's the source of forgiveness. That he's the source of faithful and steadfast love. He says that several times. And I think David needed to hear that and needed to be reminded of that and needed to remind us of that because all of us have been betrayed and left by someone or something in our lives. And God is saying, I will never leave you. I'm steadfast in my faithful love to you, my chesed, my covenant faithfulness to you. I will not break my vows even though you do all the time. I'll never divorce you, and you're going to run after other less wild lovers, uh, but I promise you, I am the most wild lover that will ever love your soul because I know you, and, and I delight in you. As a husband delights in his wife, as I delight in you, there is deep and profound knowing and being known from this steadfast love and a hope that goes beyond this world, and it is a unique source for us. He is the unique object. Listen to verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like you, like yours. Here's a bit of homework for you. Go test whatever it is that you're seeking to give you joy and hope and peace and satisfaction in your world. Put it to the test and see if it produces within you what God promises to produce. Because what you're going to find is like David. He was amazed. There's none like you. There's a lot of pretenders. There's a lot of counterfeits. There's a lot who say they're just like you, but they're not just like you. None are like you. You alone and your works are unique, and you're the unique object of my prayers. God alone is the source. 
And then the final thing, we said the motivation for our prayers, the object for our prayers, but what about the power of our prayers? Okay, Bill, fine. I'll go to God. He's got this. But how do I know he can do what he says that he can do? I'll pray, but how do I know that he has the power to do what he promises to do? For you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God, is what David said in verse 10. The greatness of God has to be central to our lives. It is the power of our prayers. It is not the vitality of your prayer. It is not the, uh, the winsomeness of your prayer. Uh, it, it isn't any of that. It is the greatness of God in the somehow mysterious interaction of how he uses secondary means. That is, how he uses these things like our prayers to be moved to action. It is upon the greatness of God that he does these things. We teach it to our children, don't we, when we're their kids? When we pray for our food. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hand we all are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. God is great. Little one, the food that you're about to eat is a provision of a great God. The home in which you're going to eat that food is a provision of a great God. The family that you've been given is a provision of a great God. The life that you have, the breath that you breathe, the brains that you have, the sight that you have, any ability that you have is because of a great God. This incredibly great God who spoke into nothing, all things into being, this great God has the ability to speak into the nothingness of life, into the nothingness of of the battle, and say, let there be life, let there be joy, uh, let there be peace and satisfaction. The greatness of God. Folks, I'm not kidding with you. You have to get this book. And I've told you and pointed you to it. It's the simple book, Your God is Too Small. It's that thin. It's that big. You can read it this afternoon on the beach while you contemplate the greatness of God. Because if your God was larger in your mind, if you saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't be so greedy and covetous in our life. If we understood the depth of the greatness of God, maybe our eyes wouldn't stray so much onto lustful things and thoughts. If we saw the greatness of God, maybe we wouldn't get as angry at our children so easily and demand so much for them. If we saw the greatness of our God, we wouldn't pout so much and get so easily hurt in our marriages. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't worry about our looks quite so much. If we saw the greatness of God more, we wouldn't be so discouraged with the evil and the godlessness of our culture. If we see the greatness of God, we wouldn't give in so often to those appetites that fuel our soul and lead us away from Him. If we see the greatness of God, we're transformed by it. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory that is the greatness of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you see the greatness of God? Do you believe it? Can you entrust to Him through prayer, out of your need, out of whatever it is, that you can entrust to Him those things which are most precious to you? 
Lisa and I and Matthew this evening are heading down to Savannah to go pick up our, uh, my other son, uh, Zach, who's been away in South Africa all summer. And he was flying home last night. And I've got one of those phone trackers on my phone so I can see where uh, his plane is. And he's flying Qatar Airways, which you may know has, some, has had some issues. And flying into Qatar, which has had some issues with terrorism. And so I'm watching as my son is flying across the peninsula, the Saudi Arabian peninsula, and then making a turn because Saudi Arabia won't let him in. And he's going around Yemen, and he's going to land there in Qatar. And then as I watch the plane taking off again for 13 and a half more hours uh, to head to JFK, he flew over Tehran in Iran, and he flew through these places, and he's going all up and around. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, just get him home. I don't worry much, but I started to feel worry coming in. And I thought, how silly. I'm about to preach on the greatness and the glory of God. And so, God, you've got my son. If he makes it home, I will worship you. If he doesn't make it home, I will worship you. But you are great and you are worthy of my praise. And I entrust my son's life to you. I entrust my life to you. I entrust my family to you. I entrust everything that I have to you. Because what I know about me, I'm not great. I'm good at a lot of things, but I'm not great on a cosmic scale. And so I have to go to the source of greatness, of glory, and to say, God, I pray for my children I pray that they would do. I pray for my marriage. I pray for my work. I pray for our country. I pray, but at the end of the day, I entrust it to you because everything else is me wringing hands and walking at midnight, and that's not accomplishing a whole lot. And so you know what I did last night? I slept really well because my great and benevolent and awesome God is the God of airplanes flying over enemy territory. And if it went down or if it stayed up, and it stayed up, by the way, and he's in New York, and now he's on a subway heading into the city. I'm like, great, really? (laughs) But, Dad, I got a nine-hour layover. Yeah, get back on the plane and get home tonight. So now it could be a position of worry, right? But no, God, you've got my son. Would you get him home? But everything to your glory. Folks, prayer is our life. Prayer is a breath. It is our breathing. It doesn't have to be all elegant. It can be a breath prayer. Simply this, God help me. When you see someone that you're in conflict with and you don't know how to respond, God help. God, I'm poor. What you said in that simple statement was, God, I'm poor and needy. I don't know how to respond to this individual. They've hurt me. I, I want to lash out the, with them in anger, but I want to honor you. Uh, and I did, but all you said was, God, help. Right? And some of you think I'm supposed to go, okay, Lord, God Almighty, thou is the greatest of all gods. And no, God, help! And in Romans, it says this, God, by his Spirit, translates your deep groanings which are too deep for words because have you ever been at a place like David probably was when he was praying for his dying child and he just groaned and he just said oh. and the spirit says I know exactly what I need to do 
It testified with his groanings too deep for words. Folks, prayer is your life. It is your communication with the true source. Thou lovely source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. But ah, too soon the pleasing scene is clouded o'er with pain. My gloomy fears rise dark between, and I again complain. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, O come with blissful ray. Break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love. But the full glories of thy face are only known above. Anne Steele's great hymn from the 1700s, Thou lovely source of true delight. I pray that he is your source of delight today. Let's pray. Father, we come needy and worn. We come attacked on every side, under siege, in a foreign and alien land. This isn't our home. Our citizenship is with you, and we're here, and it's difficult, and we long for home. We long for true rest. We long for the king to unfurl his banner and to ride out on the field of battle and to destroy all of his and all our enemies. And we're tired of fighting. And we need you to remind us that you're the source of true delight, that you are our hope and our strength, and that one day you're going to return and make all things right and new. Until that day, I pray for this church and all those here that we would be bound closer to you and to one another and that we would point one another back and point our own hearts back to you, God, our source. We praise you and we give you all the glory that is due your name. In Christ we pray, amen. So we celebrate this wondrous mystery that is our hope, the gospel. Let's stand and sing.